text open by the voices and the sound volume are exactly the same as in the original recording. To help the ear adapt itself to the strange rhythm, rapidity and softness of the voice entity's speech, each utterance is repeated several times. Have you seen me die, Spike? Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. This is the second part of the two-part Grogpods that are all about Scarred for Life, the book series describing how Generation X kids were X-rated consumers of pop culture. This bit contains all the bits that didn't fit in the first bit. It's like another volume, if you like. And there have been two volumes of Scarred for Life so far. But there's another on its way, with a particular interest to us here at the Grognard Files, because it covers RPGs. These books are detailed, precise, and a funny chronicle of dark popular culture of the 70s and 80s. I've had a sneak peek preview of the third volume and it's packed with loads of information and articles that will appeal to the Grog Squad. Stephen Brotherstone, one of the authors of the series, joins us again to face the Games Master screen in an extended interview to pick up a couple of topics from the forthcoming volume as well as the good, the bad and the very ugly RPGs from the period. He also gives a great insight into how the comic 2000 AD provided a commentary for the decade. I don't normally need to give content warnings for our happy-go-lucky podcast, but by its nature, Scarred for Life deals with some of the dark and unpleasant areas of popular culture. In our discussion, we look at some of the more controversial games with outrageous quotations that would not get beyond a cursory sensitivity check. As Steve says, it was never a dull moment in the Scarred for Life era. So you might want to bear that in mind as you're playing this around the house or in the car. At the start of this podcast, you heard the recording from a flexi-disc, remember them, that came free with the unexplained magazine, Voices from Beyond. Talking of which, Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, super sceptic rationalist, joins me in the room of role-playing rambling as we reminisce over the Unexplained magazine with a critical eye that makes James the Amazing Randy look like Derek Akora. I was ready to do an in-depth examination of his copies of the magazine, but, well, you'll find out what was wrong with them. If I sound like I'm coming from inside an iron lung in this episode, it's because of my hay fever, which has been terrible over the last few weeks. I hope it's not too distracting. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen! Welcome to the Games Master Screen. I've got Steve Brotherstone with me again. Hello, Steve. Hello, Dan. <laughs> it's lovely to be back. <laughs> nice one. I'm going to uh, erect this 
games master screen between us to hide my secrets uh, behind here because I have a... I always get suspicious when games masters do this. Now, I've got to say, through my entire, what was it, 1980, it's going to be 42 years of playing, role-playing games. 90% of that time, I've been games master because I prefer it. And I do, mm-hmm. it, you do get sneaky. So um, I, I know all the tricks, so yeah. I'm getting suspicious of you immediately now that you've erected the screen. You can't kid a kidder, that's what they say, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll hide my uh, dice rolls behind here as well. So I've got a table, and I've got on here some uh, topics that are covered in Sky for Life that I'd like you to go into a bit more detail, because I think uh, they'll give us interesting rabbit holes for you to send us down again. So here goes. Let's uh, do the first one. Okay, okay. Interesting, interesting. Okay. I'm going to roll, and it is... A 10 and a 10, it's uh, Phoenix Command. Now, you give this some uh, coverage in the books, don't you? I do. Actually, this is a little um, sneak peek at Volume 3 mm. with Phoenix Command because Volume 1's Toys and Games, as you know, if you've read it, it was all those kinds of we wrote it from the point of view of growing up as little kids. So, it's all the kind of kids' board games that we grew up with. But with Volume 3, we're into the 80s now. So me and Dave have written this, Dave Lawrence, my co-author, and we've written it from the point of view of us as teenagers. We're starting to grow up a bit. So this is when, obviously, I discovered role-playing games and the grown-up board games. So, yeah, we've got Phoenix Command, which was 1986, I'm going to say. So I've not played this game, but... Again, it's one of those games I've heard the reputation of it and, uh, you know, people who've played it kind of have the little uh, stories <laughs> about by, them. Yeah, traumas from the, it, yeah. Traumatised by two reasons. It's Well, it's not scary. It's not scary in terms of the other Scarred for Life stuff. It's just jaw-dropping <laughs> in terms of, well, basically, it's horrendous injury porn. That's the best way I can describe it is damage tables multiplied by a million to the almost medical levels. I've only played it once about 13 years ago. It's me, mate Chris's copy. And he used to regale us with tales of playing Phoenix Command with his mates. And we were like, this sounds insane. It sounds unplayable. So we brought it in and we played it. And um, basically that it is. And one <laughs> evening. Now, the whole game took two hours to play in real time but in game time something like 20 seconds passed at which point (laughs) all the characters were dead it's forensic level sort of table after table after table what it is is basically a bare bones rpg what it is based around is gun porn and injury porn it's an elaborate combat system and the idea is your mercenaries or your soldiers or your whatever. And the meat of it is these insane, I mean, geez, deck, it's you've seen yourself old school role playing. The combat tables and statistics for weapons could sometimes go slightly overboard. You have seen nothing like this because it's meticulously researched. It was written by a guy called, let me see if I've got this right, Barry Nakazono who was a scientist who worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories. And his game is just as forensic as his day job. It's basically, there's actually, I've got, I've got me um, 
my PDF copy of volume three, I've got an, a note of the blurb on the back of the box when the blurb points out how lethal the combat system was. It prided itself on how lethal combat was. It mocked every other role-playing game. You know, you kind of play D&D and you've just took six hit points worth of damage, but you just kind of carry on because I've still got hit points left. It basically mocks that and says, when you get shot by a gun in Phoenix Command, and I quote, you now have a choice. You can either roll up a new character or rush the body to a very sophisticated medical facility and discover the joys of role-playing a vegetable, which is jaw-droppingly inappropriate. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Even in 1986. But it it kind of wore this as a badge of honour. It had, I mean, it's one of the most cumbersome, slow, outrageously complex role-playing systems. It's to the point of almost unplayability. Like, you'll... One combat round, I seem to remember, would take 10 or 20 minutes to play out in real time. Mm-hmm. And you've got just a ridiculous amount of damage tables. So you've got kind of hit location tables of being shot in the eyeball or the spleen or the mouth and your teeth smash and bullet trajectories. There's rules for bullet trajectories, how your bullet drops at great distances from snipers, bullet speeds. Um, sound detection you've got things like I seem to remember those things like your stance uh, is very important as well like if you get say you've got your assault rifle up to your chest a bullet could hit you in the arm you've also got exit and entry wounds you can get hit in the arm and a bullet could exit out the back of your your, your back (laughs) but you can get hit in the arm and a bullet could travel or could pass right through your bone into your lung or your heart and travel around your body and come out your thigh. And it generates these tables in forensic detail to the point where you're kind of left feeling a bit lightheaded. It's sickening, <laughs> which is why I put it in. It's horrible. It's absolutely <laughs> horrible. It is literally, like I say, it's injury porn. And what's this uh, premise then? Is it a militaristic uh, game? Is is, is that it's, it's super militaristic? It's I, I'm struggling to remember if it actually had a background. I think right. it was just a kind of catch-all. I could be wrong because there's lots of supplements. But all I remember from it, because I did a little bit of research, I couldn't remember any kind of background or law or backstory that stood out. It was almost like your soldiers. Um, you're fighting now. Here's a load of tables because that's yeah. all the guy we seem to be bothered about. Because it was, I've got no doubt in my mind, it was meticulously researched. It was all scientifically accurate, but it was a bollock to play. I mean, like role playing game geek and forums have battle reports that people have posted from Phoenix Command games, and it's almost kind of the laughing at just how insane these damage tables are and what happened to my character and how the bullet went in his forehead and came out of his ass and i think it's just <laughs> mental and it's true this is the thing it's true having played it once i do remember managing to last quite far into the game and i got shot once and that was i didn't die but i was losing so much blood that i couldn't move so that was me essentially out of the game that was mm. it and I just had to sit back and let the other two players who were left get on with it. But it was an experience I will never forget. <laughs> yeah. As long as I live, I never want to play it again. As long as I live, 
but yeah. I'm glad I played it. Yeah, because otherwise it's uh, it's an early bath and watching uh, Bucks Fizz win the Eurovision <laughs> again. Is it? Yeah, this is it. Yeah, I don't want to go through that again. This is the way <laughs> I think. I found out through research that Barry Nakazono what was it? Did I get his name right? Nakazono. He went on to write for Legion Edge Games, a role-playing game based on the Bram Stoker's Dracula film and the Lawnmower Man film. It's the Lawnmower Man virtual reality role-playing game. I need to find out more about this based on yeah. how awful Phoenix Command is. I need to know what he did with Lawnmower Man. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, well, they say it's not rocket science, but in this case, it could be it, rocket science. Yeah, it literally was. <laughs> Okay, let's roll on the table again. Okay, so I've rolled a 20, and this is not role-playing related, but this uh, fueled my imagination and my role-playing imagination. I wanted to talk to you about it, and that is the Unexplained magazine. Oh, fantastic. Um, wow, yeah, scariest magazine ever. And this is the thing. I've, one thing you've got to know about me is, I mean, we talked about this in last week, last time in episode one. Um, grew up a huge nerd. Um, games, board games, comics, horror, sci-fi. And I've always been fascinated by the paranormal ever since I was a little kid. Um, UFOs and ghosts absolutely fascinated me. And I always grew up a kid just devouring this stuff, even though it generally terrified me. And throughout the 90s, at the height of kind of X-Files mania, I was Fox Mulder. I I believed everything. And as times wore on, I describe myself as a sceptical believer in that I will hold my hand up. I have seen and experienced things that I probably will never be able to explain. And some of my most sceptical, rational friends have seen things and experienced things that they can't explain. So I, I, I believe there's a lot that we don't understand, but I don't believe in the supernatural. I just believe that the scientific processes that we've not explored yet. I mean, without going into too much detail, in 1996, during Euro 96, um, I used to go out every Thursday with my mates clubbing. There was an alternative club, a rock club in Liverpool. It was legendary called the Crazy House. And we'd go out there every single Thursday. And this was during 90, Euro 96, Nightclubs throughout Britain had special dispensation to open at four o'clock in the afternoon, which was incredible. Now, it's of course, it's part of the course, but back then it was like, wow, we can stay out till four. And because it was the week of midsummer's, basically midsummer and June, so half past four in the, after, in the, the morning is bright daylight. It was, I remember we were on Slater Street in Liverpool and um, just around the corner from Bold Street. and. Some of my friends were inside a little fast food place and the street fire some light. To this day, I wasn't drunk. I hadn't been drinking. I was drinking water all night. Didn't take drugs. Completely sober. For some reason, I turned round. My mates were kind of looking into the window of the fast food place while they were chatting. I turned round and looked up and I saw a massive black triangle go overhead over the, the street silently. Didn't make a sound. Big red circular light in the middle. A little blue lights at each tip. And the thing is, I could have turned around to my mates. I was within a foot's distance and just grabbed them. I was rooted to the spot. I couldn't believe what I saw. It went over the street 
over the rooftops, at which point I didn't say a word. I sprinted to the end of the street and turned up Bold Street, ran as fast as I could. I was completely shell-shocked to the top of Bold Street, where this street basically opens up. You can see everywhere. It was nowhere to be seen, and it was real. And so I walked back. I couldn't. I was completely, I can't put into words how shocked I was, kind of mm. asking myself, did, I, did that just happen? Did that really just happen? Got back to my mates, and they were like, where the hell did you go? You just kind of sprinted off without saying a word. I had to lie. I didn't tell them. I, I lied and said I'd seen a friend from school I hadn't seen in years. And I didn't tell anyone for another week or two. And it, to this day, it's, I still think about it all the time. It's kind of one of those things where you think, right, well, I, know, I don't know what it was. I had to rationalize it and say it's some kind of top secret military plane. It does kind of change your worldview. You can't help think, thinking, well, if I saw that, if a million people say they've seen a ghost, if even one person can't explain it, then... So the unexplained, when I was 10 years old, obsessed with the paranormal, I was so excited by all the TV adverts. Yeah, it was advertised. Yeah, it was every fortnight, and it was going to have ghosts, and it had a UFO on the front, and and I <laughs> I lasted three issues and tapped out because it's the most terrifying magazine. I couldn't even look at some of the pages. Now this was after the Osborne Book of Ghosts was out, which was a, a book that I didn't own. I couldn't bring myself to own it. It was part of a trilogy of Osborne books. One was UFOs, the other one was monsters, and the third one was ghosts. And I loved, I adored UFOs and monsters, beautifully illustrated, beautifully written. And I saw the Osborne Book of Ghosts in the school library, opened it up, and I remember opening it at certain pages with ghost photos, snapped it shut and threw it across the table. I couldn't bring myself to look at it. And I had the same effect with the unexplained, the weird, crude, colored pencil drawings of aliens and UFOs, the creepy photographs of ghosts and in issue one the spontaneous human combustion photographs that was the end for me i just want managed to get through issue two and i would literally prize open each page inch by inch just in <laughs> case it was a scary one and kind of slowly open it it just petrified me then Stupidly, with issue one, I put the free flexi disc on my dad's record player. Got about <laughs> got about yeah. five minutes in, and tore it off. The electronic voice phenomena flexi disc. Everything about that magazine was utterly, utterly petrifying. Yeah, and it was the case, wasn't it, that it was heavily advertised because it was. One of these that was uh, you could build up into collectible parts and yes, did, send away did, for binders. Yeah, they did a deal, didn't they, on the first few issues to get you yeah. into it. And um, I think I think I only lasted uh, ten issues, but those ten issues provided so much source material for Call of Cthulhu scenarios and oh, uh, man, other yeah. stuff. Yeah, like it, I think yeah. that was the first time I'd heard of the Men in Black, and there's these creepy Same stories. Here. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, those uh, weird pencil drawings that illustrated it were really creepy, weren't they? The, yeah, because yeah. they weren't professional, as in polished. There was a childlike, crude quality about them that made them even eerier. It was almost like a, a UFO witness drawings, these volume three. There's a the paranormal section. There's an article where I look at um, communion, the book and the film, and a book called The Uninvited, which is the point where aliens in pop culture go from the close encounters of the third kind 
and E.T., friendly space brothers, and they're, they're here and they're cute and they're benevolent. With Communion and this book, The Uninvited, they are the home invaders. They're terrifying. They're horror icons. And I had that same effect with The, Uninvi- uh, the Unexplained. There's that before the kind of UFO folklore homogenized aliens into the classic greys with the unexplained you had these you probably remember yourself all these strange varieties of tall thin fat shapeless mad spacesuit wearing naked kentucky goblins there's like a thousand different varieties of aliens and they're all just so bizarre and surreal and like you say it did fire up my imagination and i can never quite bring myself to read it properly because I was too scared by it. I couldn't go back to those three issues I had. Every now and again, I would peer at an issue in the newsagents, but I never lost my fascination with The Unexplained. And I kind of, I think I've got the odd issue secondhand in the 90s when I was in my 20s and I could kind of stand to look at these things a bit more, even though I was still scared by them. (laughs) This is the thing, I've always been, I've always been very squeamish, horror obsessed but incredibly squeamish. I went through a huge gore phase as a teenager, but I was always nauseated by blood. And it's the same thing in the 90s. I was absolutely obsessed with UFOs and ghosts, but I would go to bed as a 25-year-old. Am I going to get abducted tonight? (laughs) (laughs) It's just bought a full set of The Unexplained on eBay off a private seller. In their binders, 13 binders, absolutely delighted for a very reasonable price. To It was an, um, a retired newsagent who was selling off lots of his own private collection. And he opened his hatchback and there was just this incredible selection of old 70s, 80s magazines and binders. So he was like, well, there's your unexplained 13 binders. I'm not sure if you're interested, but he is like man, myth and magic. He is this other one. And Dave's like, oh, I'll have them. So he yeah. went home. With these huge, dusty binders of the most amazing paranormal occult magazines, I went back to mine and spent a most enjoyable evening with cups of tea going through my prized collection of the unexplained. <laughs> Finally, as a 50, sorry, 49-year-old, I was able to look through them. And I have to say, I still got chills. Your yes. certain pages were, oh, that's, that's not nice. Spontaneous human combustion pitches are just horrible. Yes. To yeah. this day, and I did make notes as a Delta Green player. It's my favorite game at the moment. I had my notebook by my side, making notes for Delta Green scenarios. Like you yeah. said, it's an absolute gold mine. So, but, when you tapped out after issue 10, was that because you were too scared or you just lost interest? Uh, I think my dad was a bit too tight to us because they, they were quite expensive, weren't they, when she got yeah, them full yeah. price? Because they had no ads in them, did they? So um, they were, yeah. like, quite expensive. So, yeah, I, th- I don't think yeah. my paper around went that far. I, I, I still like wanted one issue was, like, half my pocket. Oh, yeah. 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 It's that thing. It's it's one of those things where I still looked at the um, the front cover in the local news agents. I just couldn't bring myself to look inside. But, yeah, I never lost that fascination with the unexplained. Let's, uh, let's roll on the table. Okay, and I've rolled a 16. Now, this is an infamous game uh, that you cover, and uh, I've never seen this, but I know its reputation, and that's Alma Mater, the high school role-playing game. (laughs) 
Jesus. Yeah. Um, this is one I'd actually never heard of until I started researching Volume 3. And it's one of those, when I read about it, I stumbled across it on the internet. And part of me was thinking, where's the punchline? This can't be real. Hmm. But it is real. It's like you say, it's a high school role-playing game from, I think it's 1982, 81, 82. Um, it's claim to fame. is It's got illustrations. The great Errol Otis, who was one of the big D&D illustrators lots of the monsters lots of the um the rule books but it's basically a high school role-playing game but not like porkies or the breakfast club this is it's sex obsessed it's drugs obsessed because it's old school role-playing there's 20 tables on every page there's a table for everything but essentially you play high school students, you play jocks, you play cheerleaders, you play the SWAT, the loner, the outcast, all the cliches. But that's where the kind of, I guess, the cliches end. It's beyond any of the films. It's, I don't know if this is what American high schools are actually like, but um, it was, if I remember rightly, it was written by two Canadians and like I say, illustrated by Errol Lotus. But there's tables for social situations, how teachers react to you, how other students react to you. There's tables for and rules for having parties, what happens in parties. Um, incredibly complex combat system. But then we get into rules and tables for dancing, as in what happens when you dance with a girl or dance with a boy. Um, flirting, dating, going steady, and then you've got rules for seduction and having sex in granular detail, which leads to the rules and tables for pregnancy and falling in love. And it doesn't shy away from any of these things. It's absolutely, it's like rules for contraception. And I quote, this is the um, seduction rules. If two characters wish to have sex, a seduction roll is not necessary, but both, both must roll against charisma minus one. Your appearances and your constitution is plus three, then marijuana has this effect on you. But it reduces love and sex to these cold, quite unpleasant and very greasy mechanics. There's um, another quote here, which is appalling. It says, note that it is almost impossible to seduce a character who is actively resisting. But if your character does, it is called rape. I mean, come on. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't stop there. Some of the illustrations are just kind of X-rated. There's a, on, on the page with the seduction and sex rules, there's a Errol Otis illustration of two teenagers making out on a sofa. And the lad is cupping the girl's breast. He's got one of her breasts out of her top and she's unzipped his jeans and she's got her hands inside them. But it's a really grotesque, ugly picture. Everything about this game is ugly. Kids getting off with each other and the jocks and the thugs. And I was going to say borderline, but it's not. It's actual racist depictions of people of color as well. It's just a, a jaw-dropping game. 
I'm not seeing this game, and I've heard it mentioned on um, one of my favourite podcasts, uh, Safe for Half, and um, they've talked about it in, in a similar tone that you, that you have, because um, there are um, a growth of these uh, teen games that are quite popular now, you know, like Monster Hearts and uh, East yeah. Texas High. You know, but since Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there's like there's been an yeah. explosion of, of setting uh, in here. But where, where's this pitch? What, what what's the idea? Is it meant to be? Where, where's the fun in it? <laughs> who's, who's it meant for? It's just the weirdest thing. I thought that myself because it doesn't seem pitched to teenagers. And you're right; these the new wave of teenage, the post Buffy teenage games are fun and yeah. inclusive and diverse and it's pitched the kind of the emotional side, the new wave of games. It's about having fun in school and there's drama, fun drama, and it's emotional drama. And it's about having fun. Alma Mater seems to be pitched at, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> men in their 20s, possibly late teens, who still think that giggling at boobs and drugs and getting off with girls is funny. It's got to be. The thing is, there's actually some really nice ideas in there. Mm. It's actually, there's some nice structural ideas. The There's a structure there that says from the outset, when you roll your character up, they've got a built-in shelf life because a campaign, if you decide to do a campaign of Alma Mater, it takes place over four, the four years of high school. So your character gets older by one year, every year, and the character grows and then they graduate and they automatically leave the campaign. It's like Grange Hill, constantly rotating cast of characters. I thought rules worked, and has your heroine, is your heroine spiked with kind of washing up powder, and it's just this horrible, greasy, <laughs> disgusting game. There's a map of the high school and the surroundings. There's really nice structural ideas to do with um, the GM mapping out a day in school. So there's a flow which your players may or may not sort of encounter some of these. Some of these things are going to happen no matter what. And I was thinking, if you take these things out and strip them down to kind of, you know, the way modern games now, mm-hmm. they've stripped rule systems to the bare bones. It's all about not letting rules get in the way. There's some quite beautiful ideas in this mm-hmm. game, but it's just so horrible. <laughs> you feel like, I felt like having a shower yeah, when yeah. I was reading about it. I can't imagine what it's like to play. To use a modern term, we'll draw a veil over it and apply an X card to that <laughs> yes. game, I think, and uh, roll again. That's it. And uh, this time I've gone for 22, and that is The Price of Freedom. Now, I have this game, um, and I know that it was quite a controversial game when it was uh, reviewed in White Dwarf, and there was a lot of debate over, over it. Uh, for people who don't know it, uh, tell us about The Price of Freedom. I used to feed them, yeah. I mean, I, that was actually, do you remember that one from the old games of Liverpool days? Seeing the boxed starter set, just this beautiful cover. It's That was like 80, 86 by West End Games, who I later grew to love because of the incredible Star Wars role-playing game that they brought out. But it's essentially the role-playing version of Red Dawn. Mm. It's Reagan-era America's second greatest fear the greatest fear was world war three with russia its second greatest fear was a soviet occupation of america mm. so it's a, a hugely satirical game it's um 
tongue is in its cheek all the way through. I, I got onto it as a 16-year-old. Mm. So I was always surprised that White Dwarf didn't get onto it and lots of reviews didn't get onto it. And they took it at face value because, mm. to me, it leapt out at the player. It's, um, it posits this world where, as the game says, I seem to remember it's a piss-weak American president capitulates to the Soviet Union who've built some kind of shield, some kind of Star Wars defense system against nuclear missiles. So they'll always win a nuclear war. So they invade America and the, the president surrenders. And good old boys and rednecks and decent Americans suddenly put in their situation of being under Soviet rule. So you play members of a resistance cell who's, who are fighting back against the, um, the commies, the dirty commies. And you can be like rednecks, um, bankers. The good thing is it actually takes pot shots at all sides. The mm -hmm. pre-generated characters in it are ultra right-wing rednecks and there's also kind of cliched far left. So yeah. it does have a pop at everyone. But, I mean, there's some beautiful ideas in it. It was one of my favourites. When we only played it once, but the character sheets are actual identification papers, which is lovely. It's the actual papers that you would present to the kind of your Soviet guards. I think White Dwarf, whoever, they like the game, but it left a bad taste in the mouth because they completely took it on face value and saw it as this incredibly right-wing, almost fascistic, jingoistic, mm. smash-the-commies, wish-fulfillment game. Whereas even me and my mates, as 16-year-olds in school, thought it was hilarious and when i wrote about it in volume three um, it turns out that um greg costakayan who's a bit of a legendary games designer he ended up being a bit kind of embarrassed by the game well there's two french reviews just laid into price of freedom because they didn't get it either i mean but but they really didn't get it they thought it was disgusting um they it was two of the most scathing reviews i think he'd ever had and then um a finnish reviewer i think she was a a games designer and a journalist and a TV presenter called, um, I'm going to absolutely massacre her name now. I think her name was Johanna or Johanna Peterson. Interviewed Greg Kostakayan and took him to task over Price of Freedom. And he kind of, I won't say he buckled, but I think by this point he'd kind of had enough of the criticism. And he said, yeah, I feel a bit embarrassed by the whole thing. She said to him, she posited that it was a conservative game designed by a non-conservative designer who wanted to sell games to conservatives which it wasn't it mm. was a as we would, we've just been talking about it's a satirical piss take of conservative ultra reagan values written by a liberal for liberal players mm. who got the joke yeah. but it does seem that a lot of people didn't get the joke great yeah. game yeah, great yeah. game, but a problematic game for a lot of people. Yeah, I played a game at uh, Grogmeat, and uh, we played the characters from uh, Breakfast Club. I uh, was uh, Judge Nelson's uh, character, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and it's quite—it's it, quite um, <laughs> detailed in its uh, in mechanics, isn't it? It is a quite a militaristic uh, mechanical game. Um, but it, there is that sense that it is uh, it is satirical, and it probably 
got developed further with yeah. uh, paranoia. Uh, you know, you could see the basis of paranoia yes. in that. Yeah, yeah. Which, which he which he went Definitely. on to design. I mean, that was that was yeah, great game. That was in your face. That was yeah. almost like a Mega City One type thing. But yeah. I think that's the thing. There was a thing in Price of Freedom though. There's an actual. I think it was a page or a section that was a note to liberal readers, which essentially explained the joke to liberal players. In case you don't get the joke, I'm going to explain it to you. And yet they didn't. Mm. They still saw it as this disgusting ultra right wing wish fulfillment game yeah. system. Fascinating. I don't think, I don't know if that would happen now. Because like you say, it's it's one thing for us to say this in hindsight, even though I got the joke back then, but we were mired in Reaganomics and Reagan era politics and the Cold War. The commies were the bad guys, all the films, all the baddies in movies, Rambo films. The Soviet Union were the bad guys. Yeah. And that's the way it was. So I kind of see why to a point, up to a point, why people just didn't get it. Yeah. Maybe it was too subtle. I, I think too subtle, and I think um, games of this era, they were trying to push into different areas, and they didn't always strike the right balance tonally. So if you see yeah. that with Alma Mater, and we can see it yeah. with this to some extent. <clears throat> it's not very clear what the purpose of the game is. They're like reaching out, and they probably produce quite quickly. Not enough idea of having a consistent pitch and mood yeah. and sensibility about it. I've got no doubt that Greg Costigayan knew what he was doing and he got the joke, but I think that's the problem. He got the joke. Yeah. So he, he just carried on. Like you said, these games were, I wouldn't say churned out no. because, but there was certainly a production line. Whereas now mm. you, you'll find a lot of role-playing games will be supported, but you'll get two or three supplements or campaign books a year. I mean, you remember back then, your, your listeners will remember, it was incredible. You'd get a game that was kind of, it would have two supplements or an adventure every month. Yeah. And it was a proper conveyor belt. So I think it was that kind of like, right, we've done Price of Freedom. Greg, we've got the Star Wars license. We've got yeah. to do Star Wars next year. Yeah. So it was like, oh, so there wasn't time to playtest properly. So like you say, do the sensitivity reading. It was just like, right, finished, out. Yeah. So it must have come as quite the shock. To get so many scathing reviews. Yeah. But it's like you say, it was that period. It was Alma Mater. I think they knew what they were doing there. But there's there's a lot of games like that where they kind of... Do you remember the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing game by Palladium? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the sexual deviancy tables? That's going to be in Volume 3. They did a table of sexual... I mean, it specifically said when you roll up your character, there's a chance they could have a sexual deviancy, homosexuality, being into BDSM, a sadist, a masochist, which you're like, this is a game about kung fu badges and... <laughs> yeah. like, why, why is this here? Why is homosexuality a deviancy in, like, 1987 or whatever it was? But, yeah. again, it was a case of, right, we're right now game. We haven't had the thought to actually ask people, is this, should we really be doing this? But like I say, scarred for life here. It's, yeah. It was never a dull moment back then. Okay, let's have one more roll on the dice. 21, and that is 
this is a gift for you because I want to talk about 2000 AD uh, because on our podcast we've said that that's one of the foundational publications of our lives. It was at the centre, the core of um, our imaginations uh, back then, and you give it yeah. some brilliant coverage yeah. in uh, in the books and in the forthcoming books. So just tell, tell us what uh, 2000 AD meant for you. In one sentence, it's my favourite thing ever, above everything else. I adore it. I've I've been buying it. Well, I was going to say since issue one, Prog One in 1977. Mm. But like a lot of readers, it seems I did drift away in the 90s. You got to say it's the thing that you love the most. It did go a bit shit in the 90s for a few years, and then I drifted back in the very late 90s when the most recent and longest stand serving Tharg the Mighty Matt Smith took over as editor and put it back on track. Uh, it's gone. It's been going through its second golden age for about 20 years. It's still the best comic going, but it means the world to me. It literally does. It, it introduced me to black comedy. It introduced me to satire. Um, it fired my imagination, inspired my writing, inspired my artwork. It seemed to every single corner of my life, and I love it. I absolutely adore it to this day. It's incredible. It's um, it's been the home of just so much creativity. So many geniuses sprang from that comic over the last forty-five years. Yeah. And you give special attention to Kevin O'Neill, don't you? You give a a, a section in the and do yeah. his artwork for uh, Nemesis. And for, for readers who are not aware of Nemesis, perhaps give a, a pitch. There's the full, I haven't got around to writing the general overview of 2018 in the 80s yet, but yeah, I had to give special mention to Kevin O'Neill, the artist, and Nemesis the Warlock in particular, because his artwork, I'd never seen anything like his artwork. I saw it in Star-Lord comic and some of the early issues of 2018. But with Nemesis the Warlock, it was suddenly became fully formed. It, it seemed to inspire him now nemesis the warlock is essentially set in a far future where the earth is now the termite empire humanity is spread across the galaxy led by a racist dictator called Torquemada, who basically wears a metal kkk hood and he is as it turns out a descendant of thomas the Torquemada, who was the leader of the kind of the spanish inquisition and the whole thing is basically about um, Nemesis, this demonic-looking alien resistance leader who's leading the surge against the xenophobic, genocidal forces of humanity. Humanity is literally going from alien planet to alien planet and wiping out entire races. We are the bad guys, and the weird-looking aliens are the good guys, and it's all about the other people who don't look like us doesn't mean they're bad. And it's mm. Pat Mills, the writer, basically saying that humanity can be quite horrible at its core. Mm. And that's Pat Mills' idea is we've got to be better than this. We mm. can't be Torquemada. And the artwork is just astonishing. It's kind of like um, Hieronymus Bosch meets H.R. Geiger meets God knows what. It's just there's so much detail. Everything's angular. Everything's spiky. You can just look at these panels for hours because there's so much detail. There's little sight gags. There's things going on in the corner of every panel. Um, the designs are just astonishing. 
Nemesis and the the Terminators, the Alien Terminators. There's um, there's just it's breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. Kevin O'Neill left Nemesis sporadically throughout its run, but he left for good after I think it was book five. He left towards the start of book five, and him and Pat Mills invented steampunk. They go to this, they visit this planet um, in the Goth Empire, but it's basically people going around on steam powered roller skates and zeppelins. But Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill can't find any precedent. It was just kind of this brainwave that they'd had from modern steampunk. Then he, Kevin O'Neill gets scooped up, as so many British artists and writers did, by DC Comics in the 80s. They used 2008 as a talent pool. Um, this genius writer, this genius artist would spring onto the stage and just wow everyone in 2000 AD for a few years. Then DC would come in and offer them a huge paycheck and they'd go to Vertigo Comics and become superstars. So Kev O'Neill starts drawing American comics, superhero comics, and America never, ever got on with him because his style isn't smooth. Like mm. Brian Bollins, it isn't pleasing to the eye. It's ugly and angular and nightmarish. So he's drawing Green Lantern stories written by Alan Moore, and they are literally like Hieronymus Bosch nightmares with these incredible nightmarish Green Lanterns. The Comics Code Authority refused to put their seal on any comics that Kevin O'Neill drew. Not because of any specific image. It wasn't like there wasn't naked breasts or gore. They objected to his drawing style in general. To this day, I think, and I could be wrong, he's the only artist that the Comics Code Authority of America took offense to his drawing style. Everything he drew, because they, they were offended by it. It was so hideous and frightening and ugly that they found his drawing style unsuitable for children <laughs> which is just a big he obviously being a brit he took that as the biggest badge of honor ever as you yeah. would you'd be yeah. made up with that yeah but yeah then we've got like i take a look in the cold war section take a special look at the judge dread story the apocalypse war which blew my mind nuclear war in my favorite comic yeah. So I don't know don't know if you've ever read that one there. Oh yeah, I, I know that one really well. And of course it, it was a uh, a long time coming and um it was preempted wasn't it by the block war, block mania and yeah. how the Soviets had infected the uh, water and uh Yeah uh, and, so and the and population caused, mad and everyone yeah. was fighting each other. That was the beautiful thing about T- Judge Dredd in particular. Judge Dredd 2000 AD is my favorite thing ever, but Judge Dredd's my favorite thing in 2000 AD. And one of the beautiful things about it is that it's never been afraid to stay true to its format, which is one year in real time is one year in Dredd's world. He's, I think, I could be wrong, but I think he's like 80, 74 or 84 years old now in the comic. He's an old man. And the comic is now dealing with this icon who is growing old, is in the twilight of his career. And one thing 2000 AD and Judge Dredd will do is they will plant seeds for huge stories over three or four years. And they did mm. that with the Apocalypse War. There's a story in like 1978, I think, where Judge Dredd takes over as Marshal of the Moon briefly. And 
they hold the Olympic Games on the moon, the Lunar Olympics, and the SOBs, the Soviet Union, take exception to one of the games. I can't remember. I think it's kind of someone dies and they wage war. And it's a very civilized war. It's basically done as like an Olympic game almost. It's very structured and it's two teams fighting against each other. But um, obviously Mega City 1 wins that war game and the sobs at the end are like, right, we're going to come back and we're going to strike back at Mega City 1. And as an eight-year-old, I was like, ooh, I didn't <laughs> think that this was going to lead to anything. But they did a story about, I think it was 1980, started 1981 about a pirate in the Black Atlantic called Captain Skank, who was half cyborg. and had these kind of Medusa-style robot snake hair type, like robot hair. And he was kind of, I think he kind of made a terrorist attack on Mega City One, and it was like a nuclear meltdown at a power plant. And it turns out at the end that Judge Dredd kills Captain Skank when they take his body, it turns out that he's been genetically modified and he's actually a Soviet judge who's been in, infiltrating Mega City One, whose job it was to basically get revenge for this war game a few years previously. So Mega City One send the Sobs this message saying, look, we know what's going on. We know he's an eight. You know we've got to retaliate. And the Sobs like, right, okay, one bomb. So Mega City One sends one nuclear missile and basically destroys one sector of East Meg One and like kind of Cold War settles back. But it ends with the leaders of East Meg One going, right, we're going to really strike back at Megacity. We're not going to take this sitting down. And even then I thought, well, this isn't going to lead to anything. What writer John Wagner was doing was actually planting seeds over time, mm. over years towards the apocalypse war which, as you say, was started with, a, I think it was an eight-part story called Blockmania, where a Soviet assassin, Orlok the Assassin, infiltrated Mega City One and planted this, um, this virus in the water supply that turned the population insane. Everyone was fighting each other. All the blocks were fighting everyone. And while everyone was preoccupied, East Meg One chose that moment to launch a huge preemptive nuclear strike on Mega City One at, in the last picture of Blockmania. And I was started at, at the be very beginning of 1982, so I would have been 11. Yeah. And my head couldn't comprehend it, but I still thought, well, Judge Dredd's going to save the day, obviously. So the Apocalypse War starts the following week, and it opens with this huge two-page, beautiful double-page spread by artist Carlos Esquera. It looked like a movie poster of Dredd in his tattered uniform with a mushroom cloud behind him and thousands of kind of um, skulls of dead citizens on one side and the ruins of Mega City One and you've got your Soviet leaders on the other side. And for the first few episodes, I thought, well, okay, you know, it's, it's war, but the Soviets have launched their strike. The ones launched theirs. Tears wiped out by like part three or four. 400 million people die over the space of six pages. It changes the face of the, the entire strip forever to this day, still feeling the ramifications of the apocalypse war. And I couldn't comprehend what had just happened. The mm. Half the city was destroyed. The next year's worth of stories were dealing with the rebuilding and taking place in ruined, ruined buildings and radiation and scavenging for food. And 
absolutely. This was at the height of the Cold War. The te- this terrifying prospect had happened in my favourite comic strip, just as the the um, panorama that we were talking about in the last episode. Mm. It's our screens about the effects of a nuclear war, and then two years later, we've got threads and we've got we were just bombarded with nuclear pop nuclear comics nuclear dramas nuclear comedies and it just stayed with me for decades the apocalypse war it just blew my mind that a comic would have the balls to do that not only that but at the end of the story judge dread takes a small crack team of judges into mega city one and infiltrates a nuclear bunker by this point we start to become used to the idea that Judge Dredd is a fascist, that he's an anti-hero, that he's just as likely to be the bad guy arresting decent people as he is to save the day. Hmm. And he does something that has never, I don't think anything in any comic has ever beaten this moment in terms of just like, did they really go there? You've got this Soviet technician pleading with judge dread please please don't do this you're going to kill millions of my people men women and babies please don't do this and judge dread says request denied and presses the button and launches a strike against east meg one and wipes out the entire country he is to this day they still do stories about it that he is the biggest mass murderer in history and he's had that on his conscience and he's at ease with that. It's not something he's ever grappled with. There's an America, uh, sorry, an Irish, legendary Irish comic writer, Garth Ennis, who wrote Preacher and loads of, like the big adult comics. But he wrote Judge Dredd for a time in the 90s. And he always said that's Judge Dredd's superpower is his conviction. He always does what he believes to be the right thing. He doesn't hesitate. He presses the button and destroys a city. 40 years on the strip is still dealing with the ramifications we've just finished last week uh, two weeks ago a 40th anniversary apocalypse war strip they did a flashback to the Mm. apocalypse war 10 years ago they did a 30th anniversary strip where the soviets finally got their grand revenge they released a virus into megacity one that was worse than block mania turns people into almost zombie-like feral animals and they win. They finally win. The population is reduced from 400 million to 50 million. And the city's kind of wiped out again. And ever since then, Mega City One's almost been like a third world country. It's kind of mm. having to beg for help from the rest of the world. And John Wagner, the writer, actually said he put it into the strip. Judge Dredd says to Chief Judge Hershey at the time says we've got to get used to the idea that the Mega City One, as we know it, is gone forever, and it's gone forever. There's no going back. You can split the entire story in two. Free Day of Chaos in 2012 and post Day of Chaos, and it's that's the thing I love about it. It's just it's the fact that it's not Marvel in DC. It doesn't press the reset button. They'll kill off big characters. And just go, yeah, it's all right. We'll just create another amazing character. Yeah. Whereas Marvel and DC, as much as I love them, are petrified to yeah. make the big changes. Well, uh, huge 
population-destroying viruses and the threat of nuclear war. Thank goodness that's all in the past. And <laughs> the scarred for life we can put behind us um, and just yeah. enjoy enjoy, <laughs> enjoy your three books. And and just before you leave, Steve, tell us how people can get hold of uh, Scarred for Life. Um, at the moment, it's on sale solely through lulu.com, um, a self-publishing website called lulu.com. If you search for Scarred for Life on lulu.com, you will find us. We're one of the first um, search results on, obviously, a printed copies and ebooks. Um, apart from that, we've got our Twitter feed, um, Scarred for Life 2, and we've got our Facebook page run by the delightful Dave Lawrence. So you can find us there doing daily updates and tweets every day and posts. And I will put a link in the show notes and I follow your Twitter feed because occasionally there are discounts out there on uh, Lulu that you can take advantage of. So uh, to look at Basically every week. That's the thing. I will say this to people. Do not buy our books on a a Saturday or Sunday. Um, Always buy on a Monday to Friday because there's a 10 or 15% discount on between Mondays and Fridays. So yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's been great spending uh, these two episodes with you, Steve, and thank you very much. I've learned such a lot, and I really enjoy reading your book, so uh, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you very much. It's a delight. I hope I didn't ramble. This is the thing. As I said, um, Dick, I could go on for hours. <laughs> this is the problem. <laughs> Library use. We're in the room of role-playing rambling. It's one of those really big empty ones. We've not been in one of these for a while. We've got a brute. Here's Blythe. Hello, Doug. You all right? Yeah. yeah, it is a bit, a bit echoey in here, isn't it? Well, yeah. What it needs is a jukebox, I think. <laughs> a jukebox? <laughs> some jazz. It needs some jazz. It needs some jazz. Just to irritate Do you give an echo warning? Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a jazz warning. Yeah. Echo warning. Imagine that we're in some Roswell site in a... a hangar. Area 51. Area 51. Uh, aircraft hangar. Without a UFO, it's echoing, so echoing, there's no UFO in here. Maybe because it don't exist. But, <laughs> yeah, we'll go on to that. We'll go on to that. <laughs> so imagine that we're in that kind of space mm. right now. Two explorers of the unknown and the mm. strange. Because in this library use, we're actually looking at magazines from our past. It's from 1981. This is the Unexplained uh, collection. I think I mentioned it when I was speaking to uh, Steve. Um, but this was uh, a collection of magazines that were built up into collectible parts week by week to increase your knowledge and understanding of the enigmatic world of the strange, the unexplained mysteries of mind, space and time. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the world had the first two issues. And why was that? Well, because the second issue was free with the first issue, wasn't it? <laughs> I've got 14 of them. I've 14? Got four, I've got at least up to 14, yeah. Yeah, I'm out more. I've still got them. I've still got them, yeah. They're there with the old white dwarfs, you know. In- interesting, actually, that the only two magazines that I have got from the past in, as, a, as a collection is White Dwarf and The Unexplained. They're the only two. I, I did buy other magazines. I bought other magazines in the last 40 years. But and I bought some these. of them regularly. But the, it's interesting that two, two magazines I've, I've still got the collection of. I, I don't know why. It would, I can understand why it dwarf. 
I don't know why I get this. I don't know why. So you were only at 100 issues short of a full collection you could have had. Were there 100? Yeah, well, 115, I think. 115? Were yeah. there? I think so. I think the last one was uh, uh, an index. But they built up, and you're supposed to get four le- leather binders. Yeah, you could buy leather binders, couldn't you, for it? Yeah, yeah you can get them on eBay, a full collection, and they're not expensive. Can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I didn't think there were that many. I didn't think there were that many. I yeah. thought, oh, it, oh, yeah, I thought yeah. it might have fizzled out after issue 14. Well, <laughs> well what so did my you... collection does. You must have had a binder, because the one came free with issue 7. Oh, I've not got a binder now. Yeah. No. I think the idea is that the first ten would have some kind of um, gift with them. Yeah. To, to build up a momentum. Build momentum so that you felt like you couldn't live without it. Yeah. Because these came free with uh, Zena cards. Didn't yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think issue three, I've still got the Zena cards. Have you? I have, yeah. It came, issue three or four came with Zena cards. For, so you could test, you know, whether you could read minds. You know, they're, they're un, uncut. They're not cut. I've not cut them out. So Which it tells you something about the scepticism that was beginning to develop, even after issue three. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll never know whether you have the... Uh, and it's too late now, isn't it? If, if, we, if, if it's like Traveller, it's too late now, we're too old, aren't we? We're all 2D6 to subtract our terms in local government. There'd be nothing left. <laughs> Spent forces. We could have been telekinetic marvels, couldn't we? Yeah. Empaths, but we're not. We're not now. I used um, Zena cards as the initiative device in SciWorld. So when I did it at a convention game, uh, it, the players dealt out the Zena cards uh, face down, and if they could, if they successfully predicted the shape, <laughs> yeah. they, they had advantage in the <laughs> initiative and got a bonus. And that did, didn't, no one displayed any psychic powers. And there were a couple of people really? with psychic oh, well, powers, yeah. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Uh, it, it, world, as you know, is a bit of an obsession of mine. Fantasy Games Unlimited uh, game about psychic powers emerging in teenagers, etc. Uh, I think it gives you a clue to why this was around at the same time, because there was a lot of popularity for this kind of stuff, the strange phenomena around 1981, because I think the same year, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World came out. Yeah, it was an odd time, wasn't it? The, the, particularly in the 70s, I mean, wasn't it? The, the Chariot of the Gods by that Bob Dakin fella. I think that was published in the late 60s, 68, 69, something like that. And it was almost like that triggered something in the 1970s, which culminated in, in magazines like this and Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. There was this... It's, I mean, I know you can you can look up the internet and find anything. I don't know that, but it seemed at the time there was this kind of strange peak of interest in this sort of thing. See, I think, uh, particularly when I look back at Sign World and some of the stories that we're going to cover in here, there was also like a nostalgia for the fifties in mm. the early eighties, and a lot of the some of these stories emerged in the fifties and early sixties. Because the other uh, thing that was happening in culture was uh, Ronald Reagan, wasn't it? And also Steven Spielberg had brought 
close encounter to the third time in ET. Yeah, yeah. Because as a, a 50s kid, he was yeah. fascinated by yeah. this as a topic. But looking, what the other interesting thing looking back at these copies is I, I can remember certain stories that drew my interest and I can look at all the other articles that I would have glossed over completely. Yeah. And I think part of it was, it, I don't know if it was really an interest in the unexplained or whether it was a desire to read things that would make you feel a bit weird, a bit creepy, a bit odd. And we'll talk about some of these later. But there was that, I think. When I, when I subscribed to it, bought it and read it, I don't, I don't think I was that interested in the unexplained as such. I, mm. I don't think as an 11, 12-year-old I was sitting there going, this is interesting, but I wonder what the truth behind it is. Yeah. I don't know, I was thinking that. I think what I wanted from these articles, and I think what some of them do deliver quite deliberately, is a sense of creepiness or horror or slightly slight disturb you a little bit and make you think, oh, that's weird, isn't it? It, it? Yeah, I thought that as well. And looking at it, it is more 14. So it's more yeah. about, yeah. you know, Charles Fort's endeavour of going to the New York public library and documenting these strange things and not just just putting them as a document that these things have happened and not really attempting to explain it just putting them there as phenomena that people have experienced i think as a kid and i didn't want to go any further i didn't want someone to explain it so it's a bit different now as an adult because i'm quite skeptical about almost all this stuff very skeptical but at that age, I don't think it was about being gullible or sceptical. I think it was just a desire to read something, almost like a little horror story or a little weird science fiction story that made you think, oh, right, so black holes, yeah. Could be the, you know, the universe. Mm, could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're not. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. but you accept. But you always wanting to believe it. It's like the X-Files thing, I want to believe, you know. And it's association with gaming, so we were reading these probably prior to us yeah, getting yeah, into gaming. Yeah. It probably coincided with it. Yeah. And to talk about the 14 times, that was my way into Call of Cthulhu because mm. I didn't really appreciate Lovecraft, I think, as we've documented in our previous podcast about it. It was in that um, 20s source book where it had that timeline of strange events. Mm. And that was the thing that made it, oh, yeah, of course, you yeah. can build games around that. Fish so, falling from the sky, that kind of thing. Yeah, and certainly reading reading these articles, they, they are full of Monster of the Week or whatever you want, yeah. you know. Definitely, yeah. definitely a lot of that in there. And... Uh, I guess what happened with the 90s with the X-Files is that they did precisely that, didn't they? They did it as a case. And you could treat each article in here as a case file for your scenario for Monster of the Week, Liminal. Yeah, you could, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's me just trying to shoe on Crowbar the relevance (laughs) of this magazine into a gaming podcast. It is odd though because we were, I mean, I'd, I'd love to know whether issue 14 coincided with me starting to get White Dwarf regularly. Did I stop one yeah, and move to maybe. another? Because it was de- definitely a fixation we had with this kind of stuff just prior to roleplay. Roleplaying took over and did it fill the, the same need or the same gap? I don't, I don't know. It seems, it seems very different playing RuneQuest and reading about 
uh, ESP or spontaneous human combustion seems to be very different things. But there, there was a shift where we were obsessed with this for a few years and then role-playing came along and that yeah. took over. But it did feel somehow like it fed the same need. I, I don't know why that would be, but yeah, maybe, maybe it's just, I don't know, that kind of, I don't know, that thrill of mystery and yeah. the unknown. Did that channel into role-playing? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, this definitely was used as role-playing resources. Do you know why I know? I'm looking at your issue of number one. Yeah. You've got number two. Yeah. We took it, I took it away to read this diligently. However, there's loads of pages cut out of it. <laughs> is it a lot of missing? I don't, I don't know what, what I've, why I've cut those things out. I think they were pictures of... Um, look at mine. I think it's pictures of UFOs. So whether, I've, whether I used them for like a Cthulhu game as handouts or something, I don't know. I, I can't, it's unexplained. It's unexplained. It's unexplained that. <laughs> There's big chunks of it missing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this is a partial uh, review. Partial review. <laughs> Some bits have been, have been removed. Just a bit for, for handouts. You're right, it is the UFO photo file here. These are just frisbees, aren't they, being chucked? Just been lids and frisbees, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let's uh, have a look then. We'll have a look at uh, a couple of highlights each. Yeah, sure. And we'll try and explore what we can get gaming potential out of. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. Let's start with yours then. What's right. your first one? Well, as I said, this, this issue of mine it does have a, an article on hypnosis. They are more circumspect because hypnosis must be a more common experience that people might have had. Yeah. So they're a bit more, a bit more careful about that kind of thing. But... There's an article on spontaneous human combustion, which we deserve some comment. It's not the article I'd pick to build a scenario around, although I think you could, but I do think it deserves some comment, because we did become mildly obsessed with spontaneous human combustion, didn't we, as children? We did, I think yeah. we And in a way, that the article on it is a perfect example of what this magazine is all about, because... It's kind of ridiculous. You don't see, you, no one ever, you don't ever see people bursting into flames in the middle of the street. They're like, walk, old fella walking his dog. And he was walking his dog, and a minute later, he burst into flames. That was the assumption that we made. We, we made that assumption that that could happen to you then. Yeah. You know, that, to, uh, like his nylon trousers have got overexcited. <laughs> Bursting into flames. Burst into flames. There must be an explanation. There must but be. But we don't want an explanation because it's weird and <laughs> creepy. And the pictures are creepy as well. There's like the charred remains of a woman with a with a a leg remaining. And there's another there's another one, the top half of a human body and the rest of it's burnt. And they were they were very keen to point this out, weren't they? That yeah. people who'd spontaneously combusted um, were always found that Part of them was burnt really intensely, but the rest of the, the bed sheets or the chair was, was untouched, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And they never really wanted to resort to science that fires might behave in unpredictable ways. And we didn't want them to. We didn't no, want them to, no. did we? Because we read it and wanted to be creeped out by it. This might put us in a very weird light, but I think we both had discussions that when we were old, when we were very old, we, our preferred like method of in death. In our fifties or something like that. Well, yeah, when we were very old, our preferred method of death was spontaneously combusting in HMV near all the crap albums. And it made three fundamental errors there. As I say, one old, we had the idea of being in our fifties. That was old. 
Secondly, believing in spontaneous human combustion. Yeah. Thirdly, thinking there'd be vinyl albums. Well, about five or six years later, they were phased out <laughs> CDs. So, yeah. so much for us. Certainly not. Certainly we don't have the ability of foresight and extrasensory perception, do we? Yeah. Well, back then, they weren't called vinyls. They were just called records, weren't they? And they are making a comeback. So the They time are making might, a comeback, yeah. And the time might come back. You know, we can go into... We could spontaneously combust. Yeah, and take Agadu out with us. Yeah, we could do, yeah. That's true. There's hope, yeah. There's hope, yeah. <laughs> but I think the article in here that I would use for um, RPG purposes is the one on Bigfoot, on the Bigfoot Trail, which is, is great because it's written in... it's written in the sense that Bigfoot exists. It doesn't agree. You don't have to worry about whether it exists or not. It's all about, really, it does exist. And, and is there a she? Is there a she Bigfoot around? And one guy's story about him being kidnapped by the Bigfoot, what was that all about? And how do these things hide in the wilderness, undetected, all that kind of thing. It doesn't really go into whether they exist or not. Mm. And the reason for that, of course, is that it's published in Britain, but most people have no experience of Bigfoot. You say what you like, can't you? If it interviews some, some farmer in the wilds of America, you'd say exactly what you like, it doesn't matter. Well, I, 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 I beg to differ. We, you in, beg to differ? In you? issue one, oh, right, where okay. they cover the subject of Bigfoot, they have the depiction of a carved figure in Woodwards of the porch of the Peasant Hall Church, Suffolk, of the Wild Men of the Woods, there you go, you see. Proof that there is a Bigfoot in, in Britain. In, in Suffolk. Britain, in Suffolk, hiding around Suffolk. Do you know, I think they were thin on material, that in issue one they did Bigfoot, and then issue two they did Bigfoot. <laughs> Do you know, I think they maybe thin on the ground, struggling for things to write about. I think, I think part of the tactic is to uh, have continuous... Is that story, that's so, the tactic, is well, you, you, what were you in for uh, 14? You wouldn't have been hanging around for the free gifts. You want to find out what happened with the big feet. <laughs> big because feet. That, that's big the foot. thing. It's, in here, it refers to them as big feet. Well, I think they need to settle on a plural. Well, it's not a collective noun. I mean, you'd say there's a big foot. And you might say there are some big feet. In the same way that you might say, there's a lion, there are some lions, but you'd say pride of lions, wouldn't you? So what's a collective noun for a, for big feet or big foots? A toe of big foots, a heel of big foots, a sole of big, an ankle of big foots. Well, I think it's big foots, not big feet. Yeah, I'm not disputing that. Yeah, because a big foot has two feet, hasn't it? So it, a big, a big foot has two, yeah. Well, as far as we know, a big foot has a big, a big foot has two feet. Yeah. So does the addition of one more foot make it a big feet? Do you see what I mean? No. You mean you mean if, if there were two big foots? Yeah. If there was a Mrs. Bigfoot and a Mr. Yeah, he had a. In, in here, it refers to them as big feet. So Mr. and Mrs. Bigfoot, are oh, big the, feet, the big feet. Yeah. Yeah. Big feet, family. Yeah. But are you saying a single Bigfoot should be called a Big Feet? No, no. All right. Well, you could do, but I'm saying it's, it's a Bigfoot. Two of them make some big, big foots. Yeah. But then well, what I'm saying is, the collective. what's the collective name? Like lions, pride of lions, a murder of crows, etc. An ankle of Bigfoots. Big feet. 
this this is one for our Australian uh, listeners, okay? This is in Queensland, 1978, where he heard a grunting sound and thought it was a pig was loose, and he went into the forest. Then something made me look up, and there, about 12 feet high, 3.7 metres for the Europeans, huh? <laughs> in front of me was this big, black, hairy man thing. It looked more like a gorilla than anything. It could have been a gorilla, couldn't it? Could, have been a, could it have been a gorilla, <laughs> it, yes. It had huge hands, and one of them was wrapped around a sapling. It had a flat, black, shiny face with two big yellow eyes and a hole for its mouth. Amazing are holes, aren't they? Generally. <laughs> it just stared at me, and I stared back. I was so numb, I couldn't raise the axe I had in my hand. We seemed to stand there, staring at each other for about ten minutes, before it gave off a foul smell that made me vomit. <laughs> Poor thing. Probably more frightening you than you are of it. And then I made off sideways and disappeared. So this thing... Stood there looking at it for ten minutes, farted, and then ran off. Well, that's what's funny about the article. Could have been a gorilla. I don't, I don't know how gorillas in Australia, but or do they? I don't think they do. But <laughs> if, even if they don't, it's someone who's kept a gorilla as a pet, illegal pet, that it's escaped. More plausible than it being some caveman-type monster roaming the land. If we're to believe the witness testimony in the first place, that indeed, is, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, people make things up. Yeah. But, going back to role-playing, crowbarring role-playing into this conversation. <laughs> the big, on the trail of Bigfoot, it is, it is great in a way, because it, it, if you wanted to do a Cthulhu thing about Bigfoot, or you wanted to do Monster of the Week or something like that, it does, like you say, it does give you like a case file. It almost gives you NPCs, you know, there's all these tales of various people in the mountains and that kind of thing. And you think, oh, that's brilliant, really. You could, you could construct a scenario out of it quite easily and use all the real people that are quoted as NPCs and build something out of it. It's like a ready-made um, source book of sorts, isn't it? You know, it doesn't yeah. give you a, a scenario, but it does give you lots of names and incidents and things like that that you can build a scenario around very, very easily. And the transcripts of these witness statements... Just be used as handouts, couldn't you? you could yeah, just, you, you could do. Just yeah. copy yeah. them straight. You could cut them out, like as someone has. <laughs> Me. <laughs> so in issue one, they went big on the uh, UFO. Mm. Obviously, eye catching. Got a generic appeal, isn't it? Everybody loves the UFO paradox. So what the the paradox is is that it's a physical, so a mental thing. What do you mean? Well, I think what they're saying is, is it a psychic occurrence? Is it something that um, manifests itself in the imagination or mentally projected? Oh, yeah. Oh, I see, yeah. yeah. Or does it have some physical... You've imagined a flying saucer. Yes. Uh, or there is a flying saucer. Yeah. Or just been led off frisbee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it takes as its anchor piece... To give it some credibility, the, this astronomer, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who is well known because mm. he produced the Blue Book, and it's the blue, blue Book that you get the categories of alien encounter. So that's where Close Encounter of the Third Kind came from. And uh, it does these, it, it sets out the uh, different levels and categories of encounter, and then gives you a case book with some hand 
drawn, coloured in, pencil drawings yeah. <laughs> of people's witness statements. And I love this one here. So this uh, encounter that took place in New Mexico in 1964. And it's a famous one where uh, it took place in uh, Socorro, New Mexico. And this guy, this policeman, because obviously that gives it credibility, mm. a cop. And this NPC, patrolman Lonnie Zamora, was out one night and he saw this, well, he saw this contraption, this cylinder. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can remember this one, yeah. Yeah, on a tripod with a strange symbol on it. Now, he says it's a strange symbol, but to me, it just says this way up. Doesn't it? It's just an arrow pointing upwards. <laughs> it's a package. Someone had dumped there. This way up, fragile. What are the aliens trying to tell us? <laughs> Did it still happen? Did it still happen, these sightings? I mean, it seemed like, and you're going back to the, the 70s, the 70s or whatever, it was happening all the time, people seeing space. Have the aliens given up on us now? They got bored of us and thought. I mean, you could understand why they have, to be fair. Couldn't you? you could understand yeah. why they would say, God, leave them alone. Just, just leave them. They're a bunch of lunatics. Dangerous. But I don't really hear them anymore, do you? No. There was a point where they, they were on, you know, on breakfast TV... On the couch of breakfast TV, weren't they? It's all you've seen a UFO, have you? Yeah. No, I can't remember. Maybe it pales in significance in re- recent events, recent political events over the last five or six years. Maybe it's not that weird anymore, aliens. Some of, some of that, but some of, does some of it disappear onto the internet? So the mainstream yeah, uh, television yeah, yeah, broadcast yeah. media has a lack of interest in it because it's been so widely it's covered. It's just considered wacky stuff on the internet, like so much wacky stuff on the internet. Yeah. So even if it did have some, it's lost all credibility now, perhaps, yeah. As uh, Ian on the Discord channel pointed out, the proliferation of mobile phones would indicate, with everybody with ready-made cameras, mm. if there was something, we'd be taking pictures of it all the time, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Because a lot of the time, people just wouldn't have had a camera, would they? No. They wouldn't have had a camera. And I suppose you have to be suspicious about people who did have cameras. <laughs> you had not have a camera with you, did you, when you saw this UFO? Handy. Because people didn't carry around. Unless you were a photographer or on your holidays, people didn't really carry cameras, did they? It's a weird situation at the moment as well, because I think there is... People don't find these things credulous anymore. Because mm. I, I think of my um, children. They are, are sceptical of everything. They, yeah, they yeah. disbelieve everything. Um, because of uh, Photoshop and all the things that they're exposed to, they have doubts of facts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I suppose the political situation as well, the, the over is there's been a lot of doubt cast on things which are beyond doubt. Yes. But, and, and therefore, if, if people are doubting things that really are beyond doubt, something like this hasn't got a chance, has it? No. Really? You know, if you don't think, I mean, I know the moon landing thing's been a long conspiracy, but if you, if you, you know, yeah, if you think certain elections have been rigged, for example, when they clearly haven't, there's no evidence of it. If you think that, then you're not going to believe stuff like this, are you? I do think that there is, um, using some of these images that you've got left, the ones that you haven't caught out, of um, the flying saucers, because there's flying saucer 
as a cliche emerged in the 50s and uh, that's when there were first uh, reported uh, sightings so you can certainly have a monster of the week or a case file for um, your delta green uh, follow delta green game uh, using these uh, photographs because they look uh, frankly ridiculous don't they they look like uh, <laughs> a light fitting that's been thrown from uh, a, a distance. Are you suggesting it could be a light fitting from a distance? If, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that at all. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you could certainly uh, use those as uh, handouts. And as I say, some of these witness statements, and it has um, the map of the environment. You, you could actually pull this out and uh, use it. There's a, there's a photograph here that you can barely discern where one of the tripod feet and it just looks like a pile of rocks doesn't it yeah yeah it's yeah <laughs> but yeah so this is this is about um, the um, the takeoff so the, he encountered this uh, cylinder with it this way up and it actually disappeared into the and disappeared into the night yeah. it went that way up did it that way up it went it went that way in that direction <laughs> So the UFOs. Yeah. Well, there's a, in, in issue two, the uh, encouraging message from the Earl of Cloncarty. The Earl of Cloncarty. Is he a real not, person? He's not, yeah, he's a real person. Not, he's not a character from Highlander. <laughs> he is a real person, apparently. Um, and he was the um, president of the international UFO organisation, which we call Contact. And he's been since 1979 has been chairman of the House of Lords UFO committee. I think he's dead now, Harry. This is back then. He was, and what's interesting is I think he inherited, the, the British democracy he inherited his title from his father and got a seat in the House of Lords. So this fella, bear in mind everyone, this fella passed law, he had a decision on laws in this country. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> and, and when he got to the House of Lords, he, he set up this committee. So he set up a committee looking at UFOs. Uh, but the, in this message to the, the readers of The Unexplained, he says, you know, there are, there are these paranormal abilities like telepathy, telekinesis, clairvoyance, spiritual healing, astral travel. And, and the, it's his firm conviction that a few thousand years ago, uh, it was normal for every human being to be able to use these abilities. That's his view. A few thousand years ago. Let's say many thousand years ago, but a few thousand years ago, he believes all humans could do this. And do, do you know what the reason for that is? See the reason for that is because we're not from we're not from this planet. We were brought here by alien overlords, and we've lost these ability. I think he's a traveller player. <laughs> he's clearly a traveller. He's I think the Earl of Clancarty. If you, if you look through his old belongings in his ancestral home, you'd find those three little black books, wouldn't you? <laughs> All thumbed and underlined bits. I mean, I know he's got it the wrong way around. The ancients took us from Earth <laughs> to other. He's got the wrong way around, but he's just done that. He's been creative with it, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah. He's, you know, it's, 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 it's setting now. Um, he's decided <laughs> to do that. And it's, it, to be honest, it's absolutely bonkers. He's in the house of lords, this fella. Absolutely. I don't know. It's absolutely bonkers what well, he goes on about. In this, uh, in issue one, it talks about uh, Sixth Sense, and that's the one that you've actually 
pulled out the most. Clearly, that was an obsession of yours. It was an obsession. I got yeah. the sixth sense. Yeah. In the sixth sense. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's the inverse of that theory that somehow these talents were lost. What the, the, it purports in here is that it's an emergent ability. Yeah, it's an emerging thing. It's, it's been dormant and it's coming, yeah, coming to the fore. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a genetic. Yeah. It's almost like people are making things up. <laughs> I mean, far be it from me to criticise, but it's almost like things are just being made up, aren't they? <laughs> but I think he's a great, he'd be a great NPC, wouldn't he? Yeah. The Earl of Clancarty. I don't know which, which early, I think it was the eighth or no, I don't know. I think there isn't, there is one now. It's hereditary, isn't it? I think yeah. There is, there, I think there was a nine, so it might have been the eighth. So it's the, the recent, current one's dad, I think, perhaps. Um, yeah. Yeah, he'd be a great NPC for Could Cthulhu. be Petra, couldn't he? You see, there you go. He's, he's full of it. We were laughing at it, quite rightly. But it is full of scenario ideas. I'm going to start looking through all 14 issues. And does, <laughs> does he purport to be one of the ancients? No, and I don't think he does, no. No, no, he's... No, he's... No. That's ridiculous. No, he doesn't <laughs> say that. He says the Atlanteans were godlike beings as are all those from advanced civilizations in our galaxy. So he also talks about, um, you know, that the, the galaxy is full um, of, of advanced civilizations. Could be loads of them, absolutely loads of advanced civilizations. And so they could be competing against each other. Yeah, could be. He just rambles on a bit about a variety of ideas. It's very funny though, because there's no, there's no, no evidence of any of it. I know it'd be hard to find evidence of it, because it's not true. But he doesn't even attempt to cover any evidence, because he's the Earl of Clan Carter. So just believe him, okay? He knows what he's talking about. Doth your, doth your sceptical cat to him and go along with it. I guess there is something in that, isn't there? That if you're in a position of authority, or the, the role of government in these activities is always pointed out isn't it so when it comes to the yeah. ufos it's government who wants to suppress yeah it's the, yeah the government yeah always a conspiracy thing isn't it the government yeah you can know you can see in uh in, in uk culture it's about the aristocracies and the yeah the other thing this, this thing that he's written reminds me of as well is a story in The Unexplained. It's not in these two issues, but it was one that I just remember as a kid being fascinated by, really weird, about a guy called Saint Germain who people thought was immortal. There was this article on this fella and it, it, it was trying to put across the idea that he'd been alive for hundreds and hundreds of years and there were like paintings. There was a picture of some guy and then paintings of some guy. It always looks similar, that kind of thing. He mentions, he mentions this, you know, this Saint Germain who possessed a superb memory and could write an article on two pieces of paper using both hands simultaneously. <laughs> what? Both papers would be perfectly, perfect reproductions of each other. Some people still think he is alive and with us now. And I remember that there was in a later issue the article about this, this character. And again, as a kid, actually that would be a great one to dig out as again a Cthulhu thing. Because it's, it's classic Cthulhu sorcerer, isn't it? Yeah. It's the guy who's been alive for longer than he should have been alive. It's a classic thing, isn't it? And so he's like a, one of those 
um, spirograph things. Yeah, that he can... I don't know what that proves, though. <laughs> Even if he could do it, what does it prove? I, I think I could have a go at doing that, you know. Writing the same thing out with both hands at the same time. Yeah. What does it prove? I don't know. It doesn't prove it. It proves you can do it. I mean, it proves a nice trick. Well done. But it doesn't prove you're an immortal or an Atlantean oh, god. does it? Or does I, it? I have got aspirations to be an immortal. An immortal Atlantean god. Yeah. You're a megalomaniac game master, <laughs> so it, it goes along with the terrace, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. The Unexplained, you can return your collection yes. to the attic. It's not easy on the attic. It's downstairs on shelf, yeah. That's it, the, oh, it, keep them close, you know. It's got an immediate. I'm going to start reading them again, I think, though. I'm start reading them. Here's a challenge for you, then. You need to create a Monster of the Week. Based on one of Yeah, players. yeah, that, I, I, yeah, I bet there are some good ideas. You know, I mean, we've gone for issues one and two, but I think some of the um, later issues, because it's like that one about the St. Germain character, I think some of the later issues get more bonkers because yeah. they obviously exhaust the topic don't they they exhaust yeah. topics so they go into weirder and weirder territory either I remember them being either very boring because it wasn't that weird at all because they were desperate or the other went the other way it was kind of completely bonkers some of the completely bonkers ones might be really interesting to look at in terms of scenario design <laughs> yeah. well we we'll look forward to that oh, thanks Blythe goodbye Hi, it's it's Dave, Dave Patterson from the Frankenstein's RPG podcast. Listen, you asked me to try and say a few words about the pod, for which, thank you, really grateful. I'm sorry it's a bit rough and, and, and late as well, only uh, I'm on the run. You were right when you said, don't upset the Traveller fans, and, and, and you were even more right when you said, and definitely don't upset the Tunnels and Trolls fans. I, I mean, I only said I didn't like the Mummy's Little Helper, or, or whatever that healing spell is called. A- a- anyway, I- I'm on the run. I think I've given them the slip for now, but they've joined forces, and I've got a horrible feeling the Pendragon guys are with them too, so I have to be quick. Pendragon ones, after all, are the clever ones. Uh, Frankenstein's RPG podcast, uh, creating a game for the body parts of other role-playing games. Uh, find us on all good podcast streaming apps, uh, well, unless you've got to them as well. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, don't, you, don't forget to add a slogan. Right. Uh, Frankenstein's RPG, the only game to give you a hernia uh, and a price on your head. Oh, oh no, I, I, I think they're here. Oh, get me caught. Uh, we're at the end of the podcast where we're drifting towards the door with our coats on. And it's a bit warm today, isn't it? It's a bit sticky in this big room. Mm, don't really need a coat, but... Okay, so this is the time when we do our closing time chatter. The stuff that has occupied our thoughts over the last few weeks. Or things that we've got on our, on our back burner mm. that we're bringing to the front. So what about you, Blythe? Well, what's been occupying my mind has been running some egg on Aegon. Is it Aegon or Agon? Aegon. I say Aegon. Aegon. Your pronunciation may differ. I've I've run it before, but I've only ever run one shots. So we're going to run run some for our Sunday night group. Uh, We're going to do the little, uh, the shorter campaign version of it. Because it is, whilst it does work as a one shot, um, there's a chunk of the game or a section of the game, because it's a very cyclic kind of role playing game, isn't it? Bit, I mean, it's by the guy who wrote Blades in the Dark. So it's similar to Blades in the Dark, isn't it? Not, not quite the same, but it, it's a similar style of game. Um, but there's a whole section of it 
of things that happen between adventures. So as you're on your Odysseus-style travel around these various it's islands. It's like a downtime type thing. Yeah, which is quite an important part of the game. Um, and we've never done that before, have we? We've done one shows, yeah. but never done that. So I'm quite looking forward to exploring it properly. It'll feel like we're playing it properly. Yes, yeah. Because of what's interesting about the one-shots we've played and it'll be, it'll, be, it'll be proof in the pudding here, won't it? It'll be interesting to see whether this actually does happen. Because it's always felt like it's going to happen, whether it will happen. That when we've done a one-shot, it, it does a very good job, Aegon, of developing a story in the style of Greek myths. It does a really good job of developing a story. And whenever I've done a one-shot, I've always thought, oh, it'd be good to carry on with these characters, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. they managed to upset Poseidon and they managed to please Athena. What are going to be the consequences of that next time? That'd be interesting, you know. And also the way the game plays out, because you can upset the gods and get some wrath, can't you? you yeah. Can please the gods, and that helps you find your way home. And of course, in a one-shot, that's not entirely relevant to the way you play it. But in a more campaign-based game, it will be relevant and it'll be interesting to see how that influences it because whenever we've done a one shot I've always thought oh what a shame because that would be fun to carry on now with yeah that. so those because part of the game is you do get those well, I, don't, I forgot what they call them those interventions from the gods where they give you a, a steer don't they of what you, you get should... yeah at the beginning of each because what you do you, it is essentially the the Iliad, it's the Odysseus thing. You go around these islands, and each island's got a problem, and you sail into town, so to speak, and try and resolve the issue, the thing that's going on in the island. So it's very one-shotty in that sense, because you'd have very distinct adventures, and then you sail away from that island and go to a new one. Um, but before you get to each island, you have these kind of prophecies and visions and dreams that the gods tell you, try to tell you what they want you to do. And that can be... That can, create conflicts, so some of the gods might want you to do one thing, you know, Hermes might want you to do one thing, and Apollo might want you to do another thing, and you, because in a one-shot, it doesn't matter that much if you please Hermes and annoy Apollo, but of course, in the campaign game, if you do that, you accumulate the wrath of Apollo. And that's, that's what against I was, yeah, yeah, that's what I was uh, wondering, whether yeah. those prophecies then accumulate you so, do, yeah. so yeah, as you yeah. arrive in another yeah. island you get another set of prophecies you do yeah, yeah. Right. so if, you've, if you upset Poseidon for example on one island you accumulate wrath so you get penalty dice or dice that the games master can use against you because yeah. you upset Poseidon so and you can then appease him you can appease the gods so you can offset wrath by pleasing them so it's that thing of the it's an interesting game because the gods play a huge part in it you know people talk about Glorantha and the gods but in Aegon the gods it's kind of intrinsic to the way it works and the mechanics of it yeah it's funny you mentioned Glorantha because when I played it I just thought this is ripe for a Glorantha hack because you could definitely just substitute the Gods. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And it does gods. talk about it in the rules. It does. It, it bases it on Greek myth, but it does say in the rules, as a section at the back of the rules, that says you know you can use other gods. You could do it as Vikings and have the yeah. you know the Viking gods. You, you can do. You can do that. So you could do it. You could play. It. You, c- you could use Aegon to play in Glorantha. Yeah. And 
yeah, set up the Glorantham gods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. could do. Because I was thinking of the um, scenario that we're playing in RuneQuest, which we're about four sessions in now, yeah. and that's a migration, isn't it, through Prax? Yeah. And yeah. episodic in the same yeah. way. You could set it up the next season. Yeah. The, these are the prophecies of what yeah. are the gods, and uh, it would work really well. And I'd say, of all the role playing games I've played that involve the gods, Sagon's the best one. It does, you know, it yeah. does build it in in a very clever way where it does feel significant. In, in that way of, you know, Jason and the Argonauts, little chessboard, the gods, yeah. moving people around and all that sort of stuff, it does give that, there's a strong element of that to it, I think. The clever aspect of it is that it has their involvement, but the agency remains with the players, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they just influence it, don't they? So the gods... It's kind of dice pool type game, so the wrath of the gods will add dice to the games master's pool, and it's called Strife Player. And your divine favour, you can add dice to your pool to use the gods, you know, and that kind of thing. And then by pleasing the gods, you get more points of divine favour for next time, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the gods don't, can't stop you doing anything. Which is part of the fun, of course, isn't it? Because Greek yeah. myths like that, isn't it? The idea of a hubris, isn't it? Hubris. Yeah. Where, you know, you are going to do something to upset the gods and suffer the consequences, that yeah. kind of thing. I'm looking forward to it. It's an interesting game, I suppose, that although we've said you could do a go around the hack of it, it's a very, very different game to a lot of role-playing games, I, I would say. The, the way it works is very broad-brush narrative stuff, isn't it, where yeah. the and dice rolls... But that's what appeals to me when I think of uh, RuneQuest, because that, on the one hand, is doing very broad-brush yeah. ideas but then getting very granular at particular points. Yeah, yeah. So you, the scale of it is going yeah. from the minutiae to the yeah. full-scale thing. But Aegon doesn't really ever get granular, does it? It's, no. It's very much... It's very much that's what appeals to me, though. Yeah, oh, yeah, just to me. And when we, I, I, it didn't at first. When I first read the rules, I thought, well, I'm not so sure. But whenever I've played it, it's, it's worked really well. But it does have a broad-brush approach of... You know, if you if you try and sneak into the palace, you're going to make some rolls, and if you fail, you're going to be captured and put in the dungeons, and the next scene's going to be in the dungeons. Yeah. It doesn't go into, oh, you've been captured, or oh, you've been spotted by a guard, oh, can I fight the guard? Or that, yeah. No, 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 what were you trying to do? You were trying to sneak in without fighting the guards, and you were trying to sneak in undetected. You failed, you all failed, so you've been detected, so and now do. you are captured and in the dungeons. What are you going to do next? Yeah. It moves it along in quite significant chunks of narrative, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, looking forward to it. The thing that's occupying my thought, as you know, I like to go deep into a subject. I'm going deep into the Beatles <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, you start, the Beatles are fun, aren't you? The Beatles are fun. So at the start of the year, I watched uh, Get Back and was just totally absorbed by it. I was just amazing. It's an amazing experience watching that just a month in the life of the Beatles and reframing and reappraising that period of their time. So that coincided with me looking at all the books I've got on the Beatles and realising that I've got them but I've not read them or I've not read them for a long time. So I set myself a reading challenge of reading one book about the Beatles every month and I've been doing that. Some of the classics like Hunter Davis's 
biography and uh, some of the more obscure ones. I recommend One, Two, Three, Four by Craig Brown. Superb. But the thing is with the Beatles is that there's tons of stories that hang off them. And of course, I've been starting to think, right, what can I, I've got to use this, I've got to plunder this for gaming material. I've got to get something out of this for use for gaming. You know, if life gives you lemons, you've got to make games from them. <laughs> you've got to make your cards. Yeah, <laughs> your cards. So I've started thinking about uh, a Delta Green type idea and exploring it with um, Kihar's got this uh, idea of a unit Doctor Who campaign as well and to explore the era of Lennon when he was in New York and the so-called Lost Weekend mm-hmm. now this is Lost Weekend where he had a, a temporary break from his marriage to York she endorsed it yeah, she actually um, decided who he would have an affair with, so he was able to. It was all, it's all as you do, well managed. <laughs> but this um, this last weekend lasted for a year and a half, and it intrigues me about the time implications of why they called it the last weekend, mm. and uh, exploring that with uh, Delta Green and what could have happened. Because during that period as well, he got mixed up with uh, gangsters and he had to uh, record a, an album at the behest of a gangster. So how did that come about? And I'm sure there's lots of fictional potential in that. And I've, I've only played Delta Green once. I've heard him Bud's, Bud's one shot, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Um, but that's the only time I've played it, but I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm keen to play a bit more of it because yeah. you hear a lot about it, but I've, I've not played. I've not played Delta Green. I'm not. I'm, I'm just working through it. I'm reading books about the Beatles at the moment. So. Well, I think you've committed to it because you have mentioned it to our Sunday night group, haven't you? So you have committed to running some form of Delta Green. So yeah. hard luck. Even if it's about the Beatles or not, you're going to have to do something. I think. Anyway, uh, lots of gaming ahead. And uh, let's get out of this really hot yeah, aircraft hangar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get out of this aircraft hangar and put the spaceship back in. <laughs> Get outside of the cleaners. See you later. Bye. There isn't another bit. Thanks again to Stephen Brotherston of Scarred for Life. I really enjoyed our lengthy chat. And I may invite him back for an extra once Volume 3 appears later in the year. I'll put a link to the Lulu store in the show notes, as well as a link to his Twitter account, which is always a pleasure to have in your timeline. It's been another long one, so I won't keep you for much longer. A reminder that the book club is on the first Sunday of every month, and everyone is welcome. Follow the link in the show notes for an invitation. The Albert and Wizard Staff Convention is taking place in Leamington Spa this year, on the first weekend of September 2022. The games are lined up and the tickets are going to be available. Again, follow the link in the show notes for more details. I'm unable to go this time, so I'm bringing it home with the help of Asaka So, the organiser, and creating an online version of the event. Currently, we're looking for GMs and we'll release the games for players once the physical event is booked up to avoid confusion. Follow the grognardfiles.com for details. This podcast and the events and projects around it are only possible thanks to the very generous tips 
that we get via Patreon. We've had some new members to thank and give virtual gifts. However, I'll do it next time when we have a bit more space and some more random tables to choose from. It's been long promised that we would do it, but next time we finally go savage. Give yourself a Benny because it's all going to explode. Until next time, adios amigos. The first voice is that of Margareta Petrowski, who had told the experimenter during her lifetime that she did not believe in an existence after death. After her passing, the experimenter asked her how she felt in the beyond, and a voice, identified as coming from Margareta, answered, Bedenke, ich bin. German, imagine, I am. Again, we hear Margareta Petrowski's voice, this time calling her former employer, Dr. Zenta Maurinath. 